So, uh, we get going now in the story of the plagues, ten and all. Uh, it'll fill up a, a few weeks of our teaching as we talk about uh, this series, Against All Gods. Uh, if you're kind of unfamiliar with the story of Moses, just a quick recap. Moses kind of um, is, is born on the scene uh, about 400 years after Israel has been um, located in Egypt. They've, over time, become so um, large as a, as a people that the, 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 the Egyptian pharaohs have indentured them as servants, and they've, they've kind of made them the slave class of their culture. Um, and, and Moses comes on the scene at, at a time where uh, the pharaoh of that time was, was actually so fearful that the uh, Israelites would become so large that they'd overcome the Egyptians. So he, he had ordered the, the death of, of, the, of the sons born to the Israelites around the time that Moses was born. He, he is uh, spared by God and through his mother uh, as he's floated down the River Nile uh, in a basket and the, and the pharaoh's daughter uh, finds him and raises him as her own uh, he spends 40 years in the, in the Pharaoh's palace. At, at that point, he basically um, comes to the aid of one of his countrymen, an Israelite, and, and defends him against a, a slave trader who was beating him and, and, and kills that guy. And then uh, he thought it would work out great, but it didn't. And so he goes on the lam for 40 years. 40 years goes by, and, and, and Moses is kind of hanging out in Midian. He's, he's married by now, and he was kind of just a shepherd by trade. And, and God comes to him at this burning bush and says, hey, Mo." I want you to go back, and I want you to tell Pharaoh it's time for my people to leave Egypt. And Moses, if you've been familiar with the story, was not all in. He was very not in, and, uh, and, and has to go through several uh, you know, ups and downs uh, before we get to where we were last week when he finally says to God, all right, God, I'll go. I'm in. And that's where we find ourselves now. And, and, and the way that God is going to extract the children of Israel from Egypt is, is through a series of plagues, which will ultimately culminate in Pharaoh saying, yeah, you can go. Now, I don't know if you've ever read the Bible and said, why'd God do that? Now, sometimes I come to parts and I'm like, well, he could have done anything he wanted. He's God, right? Like, he doesn't need 10 plagues to get his people out of there. Why does he do 10 plagues? Why? Ultimately, the, the end game is the, the emancipation of his people. That, that's, if you, if you just want to go super practical and just, you know, cause effect, the, the end game is that, is that Israel gets out of Egypt. But, but on, in the meantime, he, he's got other missions that he's seeking to accomplish. The first one we've already talked about a little bit is he, is he wants to show out and show up so that people know that he's God. Uh, he, he wants everybody in Egypt to be aware that he's God and anything else that they've worshipped up to this point is not. Uh, in the Egyptian pantheon, there's at least 80 major deities and lots of sub-deities that they kind of worshipped in that day. And would it surprise you to know that in the Ten Plagues, God's going to basically deconstruct those, well, not all of them, but many of those major deities and show Egypt that these guys don't have any power at all. Uh, these deities were basically centered around three spheres of the Egyptian life, the river, the Nile, that's where we're going to start. The land, that's going to be the next four after the first two. And then the sky, and that's going to be where things kind of end up with the last four. But he's just going to say, hey, listen, all these Egyptian gods that you thought were so powerful have no powerful all. They're fake all the way. I'm the one true God. Know it and see it in these miracles that I do. But I think probably primary in these acts, these 10 plagues, and in anything that God does is this. Uh, when God acts, he wants to point his creation to himself so that his creation will worship him as he created them to do. 
He's going to tell Moses, we're going to read it today. Hey, Moses, go tell Pharaoh that I want my people to go free so that they can worship me. He sets us free so that we might worship him. He's done so in Christ in this day and age. That's what he's about. In this story, he's, he's about taking Egypt, who has always worshipped these deities, and even Israel, who for 400 years has been in this country, and perhaps, we don't have verses that specifically say this, but perhaps they've adopted the Egyptian gods for themselves, just like they would go on to do in these other countries that they're, uh, you know, as the future unfolds, they're going to kind of mingle with them and their gods. It's, it's a habit of Israel and a habit of God's people today to take for themselves false gods and worship them instead of the one true God. And so through these plagues, God's going to say, nah, over here, I'm the one true God. Is anybody grateful that God works this way? Like even now, uh, he may send to you uh, a, a, a plague of a sort that will deconstruct for you the gods that you worship so that you can get back to worshiping him. Happens all the time. Listen to people's testimonies. I mean, they'll tell you the story of how, well, I was headed this way, and I was addicted to drugs or alcohol, or I was a pursuer of money and all that it could bring, or I was, you know, totally given over to my body and my lusts and sex, and, and, I, and I had all these things that I, 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 they might not say it this way, but I worshiped those things, and then God, one by one, took those things and rendered them useless in my life. They failed me. And ultimately, it was through that that God brought me to a knowledge of who he is, and I began to worship him and receive by faith, faith what he's given me in Christ. It happens all the time. It happened to me. I'm a high school senior. Grew up in the church. Dad was a pastor. Uh, knew the story. Knew the language. Had the accent down. But did I really know Christ? I, I don't know. I don't think so. I certainly wasn't worshiping with my life. And I wasn't like, you know, completely... Um, off the rails and, you know, selling drugs, doing whatever, you know, pick your, spin the wheel. I worshiped a game, a sport, basketball. How dumb is that? But I drew all of my self-worth from my ability to play this game in high school. And so God, as my senior in high school, as I left my family and went back to play this game, this all-important, you know, thing in my life, uh, you know, my family moved to Illinois, I moved back to me. Anyway, um, he just started saying, no, Mark, that's not it. Didn't give me success in that game. Our team didn't even make the playoffs. We were ranked like second in the state when we started the season, and we didn't even make the playoffs. That was jarring. He ordered my steps to where uh, I hadn't applied for any colleges, and so I applied to Moody Bible Institute at the end of April of my senior year of high school. Had no business getting into any college, let alone one that had a waiting list, but I got into Moody Bible Institute and started going to school at a Bible school. Ha, ha, ha. But guess what they had at the Bible school? A basketball team. <laughs> so I played basketball at this little podunk Christian school, and it remained my God, even as I was studying him in my classes. So my sophomore year of college, God saw fit to make me go whoop, 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 and I twisted my ankle and tore my Achilles, and I laid on my back for six weeks, and fast forward to the end, guess who visited me over those six weeks? The Holy Spirit in a way that I'd never experienced him. And as Travis was talking about, my eyes were opened to this God that I'd been around my whole life but never truly knew. And here I am. What's up? <laughs> and that's how it worked in my life. It's how it works in so many people's lives. It's how I work. Listen, when I pray for, like, my kid, 
uh, who is far from God right now, I'm praying that God takes away his idols. A couple weeks ago, his band broke up. I'm sad for that. (laughs) You didn't let me finish. But I'm not super sad for that. If that's one of the idols that would stand in the way of him returning to the worship of God, I mean, the band's got to go. Anybody ever prayed someone out of a relationship? (laughs) That's my wife. Sometimes your, your loved ones come to you that you're praying to come back to Christ, and they tell you, oh, so-and-so and us, you know, we, we broke up, or I used to hang out with these friends, and we're not hanging out anymore. And you're like, sorry, not sorry, right? <laughs> because these are the things that you're asking God to remove so that people can see him and follow him as they're supposed to. Anyway, I love the plagues, because more than just the manifestations of God's power and um, him showing who's the boss. He's, he's drawing people to himself. So let's study them together. And, and listen, if, if, as we unpack the plagues, there's just a couple things, more than that, but at least a couple things that I want us to know. Um, and, and this is what God's saying through them. Uh, there's only one true God. All others are false. That's worth the congregation saying. Everybody say that with me, ready? There is only one true God. All others are false. As we start today, here's what we're going to learn right off the bat. Uh, the one true God wins against all other gods. It's not even a contest. But let's watch as the story unfolds. Moses and Aaron, um, if you're here last week, they finally get to the point, okay, we'll go. And, and so God says, okay, you're going to go to Pharaoh now, and, and here's what's going to happen when you get to Pharaoh. Uh, verse 9, uh, Pharaoh's going to say to you, all right, if you want me to listen to you, I've already told you no. Remember the bricks and the straw and all. I already told you no, but, but if, you, if you really want me to listen to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle. Pharaoh's the only guy that's ever said that, you know, to God. Hey, God, if you, wanna, if you, if you want my, you know, uh, capitulation to you, you're going to have to show it. You're going to have to show me that you're worth my capitulation. I, I get that from people as I share Christ with them all the time. I believe in God if he would just turn the sky purple or help me win the lottery. Right, they got all these conditions. Show me. They're from Missouri. You know, they're, they're, when it comes to show, um, show me, show me state, right? That's Missouri. Anyway. So the Pharaoh, God tells him, is, is going to ask you to prove yourself. So then you shall say to Aaron, Moses will speak to Aaron, uh, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh uh, that it may become a serpent. Now, we, if you've been following the story at all, this happened back at the bush. Remember, Moses was kind of slow on the uptake, and God says, well, listen, man, see that staff that's in your hand? Throw it on the ground. And, and you know, first time he saw it, Moses saw his own walking stick turn into a snake, and God says, okay, grab it. <laughs> and Moses did. And so in one miracle, God shows his power, and God also um, induces the faith action of his servant. That's the beginning of their relationship. And so this is nothing new. Uh, uh, Moses, uh, in chapter 5, had gone to the elders of Israel and done the same thing, and, and they had believed. Uh, now he's going to get to do it in front of Pharaoh. And so Moses and Aaron, verse 10, uh, go to Pharaoh and, and did just as the Lord commanded. How refreshing is that? After seeing Moses be like, no, I can't, I can't, I can't. Finally, he does. Can I just, this is kind of a little sermon sidebar, but what would happen in your life if you just went up and did as the Lord commanded in every situation? You might think your life's quality would change. The, the, the marriage that you're in might improve. 
If we would just do, isn't that the big rub? Like we come in here every week and we talk about what the Lord's commands are and, and, and hopefully they're mostly clear to you as you go, but then you gotta go out there and do them. Submit to them. And I don't know about you, I'm not batting a thousand, right? But what if we could? Would things change for us if we would just do as the Lord commands? Would our church change if it was full of people who would just do as the Lord commands? It would. So they did just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron goes in front of this Pharaoh and, and he casts his staff down before Pharaoh. It tells us in verse 11, and, and sure enough, the staff becomes a snake, a serpent. Now, now why, have you ever wondered why does God make it a serpent? Why not an elephant? That'd be cooler, right? I mean, stick to snake, pretty close. <laughs> stick to elephant? Or how about like stick to aircraft carrier? That'd be really cool, right? What's that? But he goes, stick to snake. There has to be a reason. Lots of people have offered their guesses. Some think um, that in this story, God is actually going back all the way to the garden and he's saying, hey, just, just like the snake came in and made the mess, I want to show everybody I'm in charge of the snake. Some say, no, it's, that's too remote. Pharaoh wouldn't get that analogy. So, so maybe it has to do with the Egyptian deities themselves. Maybe this is all about Apophis. Apophis is the, the snake god of Egypt, and, and his uh, realm was chaos, and he kind of uh, functioned a lot like Satan does. He, he comes into the rest of the God's business and just tries to mess it up. And so God, Yahweh, the true God, is saying, your false God, this snake God, Apophis, doesn't have the control of chaos or of anything. I, I do. But, but I think it's even beyond that. I, I think for Pharaoh, he, he's just trying to say, hey, Pharaoh, you who have uh, as your emblem of power the female cobra that you stick on your headdress. The female cobra was, uh, if not the most feared, one of the most feared animals in all of Egypt. It, it had the power to kill you and it had the power to uh, sneak up on you and kill you, which made it you know, really terrifying. And so uh, pharaohs for years had, had taken it as their, kind of their bald eagle, right? This is going to be the sign of our kingdom, and, and I want everybody to fear me and my power as your king and as your God. And so God instructs Aaron and Moses to go in and throw the stick down so that uh, the snake king can know you're not a king at all. I'm God, and I'm in charge. So Pharaoh sees this trick, and he totally relents, and he lets the people of uh, Israel go, Right? No, we're not even to the plagues yet. <laughs> so he's not buying it. Look what he does in verse 11. It says, then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and, they, uh, and the magicians of Egypt, and, and they also did uh, the same by their secret arts. So, so these sorcerers and wise men who are also magicians, um, they're, they're basically in the Pharaoh's employ. They're probably priests of these false deities that the Egyptians worship, and they come in and they're able to take sticks and make them into snakes. Now some, you know, as I read this week, some uh, you know, commentators, scholars said, well, they probably were just really good you know, sleight of hand masters, and so um, they probably came in and they, uh, you know, they had a snake behind their back and they dropped their stick, and then they said, look, a dead bird, and then they grabbed their stick and they put down the snake. Good, a couple of you laughed at the dead bird thing. That's, that, you never look for a dead bird in the sky. They aren't up there. <laughs> it's still not funny to people. Okay, I'll keep going. Anyway, um, but maybe they were just like the David Copperfields, the David Blaines of their day. They were just good illusionists. But I don't think that at all. Listen, 
We live in a natural world that is governed by the supernatural, right? There's, there's principalities and powers at work around us right now. Some of them are trying to keep you from listening to me and to the God who is speaking through me, okay? And so I believe totally under our true God's allowances, uh, our, our adversary and his adversary, we call him Satan, is able to function in the supernatural and bring about supernatural acts um, that will lead people away from God like Pharaoh's about to be led away right here. These magicians come out and they, they do the exact same trick that, that Aaron does and uh, their snakes slither around with the one that Aaron made. Hmm. Uh, I hear this all the time. You know, when people uh, see the miraculous, uh, they, they just you know, reduce it to something that was a coincidence or something that could be described away in, in nature and, and they refuse to see God because they don't want to. And so they're able to explain it away. They, they point to other things that are just as powerful in their minds. That's what Pharaoh does here. But the story isn't over. Because it says in verse 12 that each man cast down his staff. That's the part where they do just exactly as Aaron does and they became serpents. But here's the kicker. But Aaron's staff, Aaron's snake, swallowed up all of theirs. Who wants to be there on that one? Who's going to look at this one if it's posted on YouTube, Right? I mean, we got one snake, and we don't know how many snakes we're talking about, but we're, we're thinking several. Uh, they're all slithering around on the ground, and the one snake just starts going all Pac-Man on all the other ones, right? And just sucking them in and eating them all. And, and some of you think, well, why would God do that? Well, certainly the show is dominance. But did you also know that in Egypt, if you ate something, you gained its power? I mean, he's starting to mess with their stuff hardcore now, right? He's showing, listen, man. All these deities that these priests and sorcerers, you know, point you to and the powers that they have, they're not powers at all. They come from the one that Aaron and Moses represent. These are some lessons that I need to remember in the dark nights of my soul, and this is the lesson. Even when it seems like God is losing, he's still going to win. Can everybody picture the moment that the snakes hit the floor as the magicians bring out their staffs. Can you, can you kind of look at Moses and Aaron being like, well, this wasn't in the script. God didn't tell us that they were going to make other snakes. And I don't know if you've ever seen like a dog fight or a cat fight or something like that. Some of you are funky like that. You like watching that stuff. Anyway, uh, it, when the animals get around each other, there's a, a you know, established dominance. There, there, there was going to be a showdown. And Moses and Aaron did the math. We're outnumbered. There's no way that this is going to work. And yet, the one snake devours the many. How many times in your Bibles has this power of God been on display? I mean, just go forward in Exodus a little bit. Uh, Spoiler alert. They're going to finally let the uh, uh, Israelites go, and they're going to get all the way to the Red Sea, and uh, they're going to need to cross the Red Sea because the Egyptian army is right behind them, and there's no boats. And so everybody's freaking out, and God says to Moses, hey, remember that stick? tapped the water, and then walked across on dry land. That's just one of many. I mean, fast forward to the story of our Savior, Jesus Christ, right? I mean, Satan was messing with him from the get-go. He's born, and Herod, the king of the region that Jesus is born into, says, you know what? I heard there was a king that's being born. These wise men from the east came and told me that we should probably start killing babies. But the wise men let Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, know that that's what's up, and you need to get out of here. 
And so God spares our Savior in his infancy. He grows to be a man. He comes out of the woods. His cousin John baptizes him. And he goes right to the cake party afterwards, right? Like ours, right? When we have a baptism, come on over. We'll have ribs and cake. Is that where Jesus goes after his baptism? No, he immediately leaves the waters of baptism and he heads out into the woods, the desert. And he doesn't eat for 40 days. And then he goes toe-to-toe with the CEO of the other team. Satan himself comes and tempts him and tries to draw him away from his mission, of course. He overcomes, but then ultimately, as he goes through the next three and a half years of his life, Satan stands behind those who would oppose him, the religious leaders of the day, the Roman officials of the day, even his best of friends, the 12, one of them named Judas, was influenced by our adversary to betray him. And how hyped was Satan on Good Friday? Because he's like, they're nailing him to the cross. He's not coming down. He, he's he's going to die. And we're going to win. I mean, how pumped was everybody in hell on that day? High fives left and right, right? We killed God. I never thought we could do it. Satan's probably like, I always knew, right? But he doesn't know what's coming. Because in a couple days, the rock, I think we're just saying that, right? Will shake and tremble and roll away. And our Savior will walk out of the grave, alive, resurrected. And we don't have this in the story, but I'm sure at some point he turns to Satan and he says, gotcha. You are a part of the plan all along for me to free people from you forever. I win. Yeah. So when all things look like they're lost, they're not. Because against all gods, God always wins. Want to talk some plagues? A couple plagues this morning. We're going to start at the river. First thing we're going to learn from these plagues is that uh, in the first plague, God is in control of every facet of life. Everything that happens, God is sovereign over those things. Verse 14, then the Lord says to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Uh, he refuses to let the people go, so go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out of the water and stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. So off they go, head to the river, right? Made me ask the question, why is Pharaoh at the river? Like his daughters, well, not his daughters, but his, his uh, I don't know, 80 years ago, uh, some pharaoh's daughters hung out by the river to bathe. Maybe he was going to take a bath, right? Because that's where pharaoh's daughter found Moses floating in the river. With me? Maybe he's going for a morning swim. Some of you got pools. Maybe that's your deal. Uh, one scholar that I read said maybe he was going to the river to pray. Because he would go there, and other Egyptians would, to pray to the Egyptian gods of the river. Osiris was one of the chief deities in the Egyptian pantheon, and uh, it was believed that Osiris's bloodstream was the River Nile itself. Osiris was one of the creator gods, and so um, the Egyptians attributed their own creation, their own existence, to the Nile River. Maybe they went there to pray to the Egyptian god Nu, N-U, Nu, and uh, he was kind of like the Egyptian Aquaman. He was in charge of all the wildlife that lived in the river, right? 
Uh, or maybe they went to um, pray to this Egyptian god, Hapi. Uh, Hapi, we'll show you. Yeah. Hapi was uh, another creation story god. Um, and, and he was an interesting guy. He has a beard. Can you see his beard? But then he's also got women's breasts, and he was constantly pregnant. Uh, but it was this god, this figure that they had uh, decided to worship who was um, the, the progenitor of, of all life. And, and they saw that the Nile was the giver of life to Egypt. In fact, the Nile was their trademark. It's what separated them from all the other countries, like especially in their region. Most of the other countries uh, to the west uh, were just arid deserts. But they had been blessed to be given this land where the, the Nile, which starts down in Lake Victoria of Uganda and flows northward to the Mediterranean, uh, would just flood once a year. And its, its floodwaters would bring this life-giving mud, this silt that was nutrient-dense so they could grow their crops. It was just stuffed with fish and other wildlife that they could eat. I mean, they saw their very existence as tied to this river. So they worshiped the gods who had created them from it and who sustained it. So God says, go down to the river. In verse 16, he says, and you shall say to the Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, sent me to say to you, um, let my people go, that they may what? Serve me, that they might worship me in the wilderness. God never lets us go so that we can just go. He sets us free so that we can serve him. If you're a Christian in here today and that hasn't gotten to the top of your elevator, let that be your understanding today. You weren't saved to sit. You weren't saved to soak. You were saved to serve the one true living God. But Moses goes on, he says, so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know, verse 17, that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is the Nile, and it shall turn into what? Blood. Mm. That's a lot of blood. Rivers are big. The Nile's big. And so this isn't just like, you know, a cup of blood or a bag of blood you hang on your, you know, whatever post in the hospital. This is a river of blood. Now, now why the river of blood? I, I, don't miss this homage. What happens at the opening of Exodus? The Pharaoh in that story in chapter 2 is killing Israeli babies. In fact, the, the, the edict was if you're an Egyptian and you see a woman have a baby who's a Jew, you could take that baby and throw him where? In the Nile. It was a river of death. And so Moses says, hey, let's let them have a little taste of their own medicine here. We'll turn this river back into a river of death. <laughs> the river turns into blood and the fish, it says in verse 18, and the Nile die and the, the Nile's gonna stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. I Googled it, you can't live off of blood instead of water. Don't Google it, it's really crazy, the stuff that comes up. But, uh, uh, Blood is not a water substitute, and so it's not going to be able to sustain them like water did. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, verse 19, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all the pools of water so that they may become blood, and they shall be blood throughout. There shall be blood throughout all of the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. It all, say for some, let me tell you that in a second, but almost all of the water supply turns to blood. And verse 20 tells us that Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. We recognize that God's in control of every facet of life, right? Everybody gets that? I, I think we're guilty of taking that for granted. 
Because we wake up most days and we get in the car that we think we bought and we head to the restaurants or the stores that have plenty of food for us and some to left over so that we can throw it out in the country that we live in, right? Then we head to air-conditioned buildings when we work in them and they pay us for it, right? And then we go home and we spend that money on us and the things that we like and, and we've kind of just Americanized our existence to the point where we think, yeah, self-made. I did all that. What's up, Right? But can everybody recognize that if you leave here and you head to Publix, all those rows and rows of delicious morsels are the gifts of our creator, God. Does everybody get that? And that as you drive in that, you know, nice car, maybe not as nice as someone else's, but it's a, it's a, it's a nice enough car that it gets you from point A to, P to point B, can you recognize that that is a gift from your God as well? That if you rest your head on a pillow tonight, it doesn't make your neck hurt, and you get in a good night's sleep, can you, can you understand that that's a grace from God himself? Like we've, we've read in the old, in, in like both Testaments, but we've read the stories like in Job where God removes his hands of grace and protection from someone and just the utter devastation that comes as a result of that. Does everybody recognize that we all rest easy under the gracious love of a heavenly father who says, here, I'm giving this to you? Does everybody get that? I don't know if I always do. The Egyptians had always thought that their gods had provided for them through the Nile. But God comes in and he says, no, let's turn that to blood. And in one fell swoop, he kills their water supply. He kills a great part, in great part, their food supply, right? They can't eat the fish because they just pile those up in dead piles. Now, they can't water their crops. They can't water their herds. They'll just kill them. So it throws the markets into chaos because there's nothing to eat. You've seen that movie, Right? And certainly, and perhaps most importantly, it causes them to doubt the very gods that they've always thought would provide for them. Because God wants everybody to know, I'm in charge. All of this is because of me, from me, and I give it to you. So, <laughs> Pharaoh relents, right? This is the one. I'll let the people go. No, it's the first one. There's 10 more, or like nine more, right? So why doesn't he? Well, in verse 22, it says the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. The same guys who made the snakes that the other snake ate, but the same guys who did that trick uh, apparently found some clean water. Perhaps Pharaoh had a bunch of cisterns in the palace that weren't affected, and, and they were able to take that clean water and turn it into blood, just like Moses and Aaron had turned the river Nile into blood. And so Pharaoh's like, see there, just a trick. No big deal. It says, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went to his house and he did not even take this to heart. He's like, eh, whatever. But look what happens in his country. Look at verse 24. It says, and all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink and they could not, because they could not drink the water from the Nile. I love this picture. And some of you are like, that's cruel. No, but, I, but I think it's so apt. Because here's what happened. Pharaoh's like, bug it. I got water in my palace. I'm going back there. But the rest of the commoners, the people who had believed in these gods with all their heart to provide for them and had always taken for granted that the, the Nile was going to flow, right? They're thirsty. They're hungry. And when everything else is deconstructed around them and nothing that they believed in works, what are they left to? Desperation. Uh, they're just manically digging by the side of these rivers, hoping to get down to a water table that isn't blood. I've got to drink. And how many times have I talked with people who on their journey to Christ have tried everything, and it's all failed, and now I'm at this point where I just don't know what to do. I'm just digging and hoping, and, and, and I say, hey, I know you're thirsty. Can I introduce you to the living, 
water that never runs dry. His name is Jesus. Yeah. The second plague teaches us that God is inescapable. I'm just going to summarize this for the sake of time. But Pharaoh's heart's still hard. He goes back into his palace, and so God says to Moses, hey, Mo, let's go back, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Pharaoh and say the same thing. Let my people go so that they can serve me. And if you don't, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send all the frogs of the Nile up on the land. In fact, not just the frogs of the Nile. I'm going to make lots of frogs. And we're going to have frog-filled days. So filled that when you go into your house, Pharaoh, he's saying this directly to Pharaoh, when you go into your palace, you're going to be stepping on frogs left and right. And you're going to be, um, you know, needing your bread. Your servants are going to be needing the dough for your bread that night, and frogs are going to get smashed up inside of it. You're going to lay your head on your pillow, and you're going to turn over and kiss a frog, and it's not going to turn into a prince. Frogs everywhere. In fact, in verse 4, it says, frogs covered the land. Uh, God knows a good joke when he sees it. (laughs) Did you know uh, that the the frogs, the frog god is the goddess Heket. And Heket, there, frog face and all, um, she's the guardian of the river. Guess what? She's in charge of it, the river, one of the things. The frog population. She's supposed to keep the frogs from getting out of control. And so God completely debunks Heket's power right off the bat here as soon as the frogs start covering the land, right? Quit worshiping her. Uh, but because Heket was one of the deities, um, there had been a special provision given to frogs in Egypt. Just like in India, you can't kill the cows. In Egypt, you couldn't kill the frogs. Some of you might be wondering, how come the frogs cover the land? Why don't they just start stomping frogs or gigging frogs? Great legs, right? I mean, you could just do all kinds of things with frogs if you just get rid of them. But nobody was allowed to mess with the frogs because of Heket. So their belief system was proven to be false, and their belief system kept them from relief. Isn't that great? How many people, that's their case. God's just pounding on them. Hey, your belief system is false and your belief system will not bring relief. Try me. But Pharaoh doesn't. For the same reasons that Pharaoh hasn't yet. Why? Well, because, look what it says in verse seven, if you can skip there. Because the magicians were able to do the same thing with their secret arts, and they made frogs, more frogs come up. But can we all kind of pick up a theme going on here with the magicians? They are able to replicate the works of God, but they cannot reverse them. Everybody notice that? Because that's all Satan can do. He doesn't have any true power. He doesn't have any power at all except that God gives it to him. And what power, limited power he does have, he just maligns and mimics the things of God. But he has no power to reverse what God has willed to happen. Does everybody see that? So let, t- take that into your prayer life as you fear our adversary. He doesn't have any power. He just has the power that God gives him. He can mess with you, but he can't hurt you if God will not allow it. Are you with me? So Pharaoh sees this. You've you got to know they're having meetings. They're like, guys, stop the frogs. I mean, great you can make snakes. Great you can make blood from water. Great you can make more frogs. We don't need more frogs. We need you to stop the frogs. And so this incredible thing happens, and I'll close with this. Let me talk about our plague. Our plague is that it's way too easy for us to want things from God without wanting God himself. Look what Pharaoh does next. Something I did not, I guess I didn't remember it uh, from reading this back when I was studying and stuff like that. I forgot that Pharaoh came to Moses and Aaron and said, hey, 
would you guys pray for me? He gives him a prayer request. Look what it says in verse 8. He says, uh, Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. And, and then he makes a deal. And then I'll let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. He's not going to pray to this God of Moses and Aaron himself, but he says, hey, uh, we're seeming to have a problem with these frogs. They're everywhere. Um, and, and God did that to show that he's inescapable. Even Pharaoh can't get away from him. Right? But Pharaoh says to Moses and Aaron, Mo, Aaron, can you talk to this God who made the frogs come up? You know, uh, Heket is fired. She, she can't do it. Um, would you talk to him and see if he'd stop the frogs? And he makes this deal. And so I'll summarize what happens next. So Moses says, oh, cool, when do you want me to do that? And Pharaoh actually says, well, tomorrow? Are you free tomorrow? Can you pray tomorrow? And, and, and Moses is like, cool, I'll talk to God tomorrow. And so he wakes up the next morning and comes to God. And he says, hey, God, Pharaoh talked to me. and asked about the frogs. Can we stop the frogs? And it says that God answered Moses' prayer, right, as he purposed to do. Didn't answer Pharaoh's prayer, but he answered Moses' prayer, right? And so Moses comes back to Pharaoh and he says, okay, the frogs went away. Now will you let God's people go? And look what Pharaoh says as we close. In verse 14, it says this. It says, oh, oh they, they piled up frogs. Keep going, I'm sorry. Yeah, that one, 15. That was close. But when Pharaoh saw that God had answered this prayer, that there was this respite, this rest, this clearing, uh, he hardened his heart again. And he, he wouldn't listen to Moses and Aaron. He reneged on his deal, just like the Lord had said. Okay, <laughs> here's why this is our plague. Because way too many people come to God for what God can give them and have no interest in giving themselves to God. Let me tell you why this is a problem. God's a gracious God. Who's happy? Anybody happy for that? God's a gracious God. And so he listens to the prayers of those that he's created and he responds to the needs left and right of those that he loves. But what it leaves is, is the potential for people like you sitting in this room and me standing on the stage to become more superstitious than surrendered. Like I, I believe that there is a God and, and he probably can help me and I'm willing to even make a deal if he would. God, make the frogs go away, I'll, I'll free the children of Egypt. Do you and your superstition pray those kinds of prayers? In fact, some of you are here right now because it's, it's hit the fan in your life. And, and, and all kinds of messes happen and you're like, well, I'll try church, I guess. And, and I'll come in here and, and maybe someone will pray for me in my situation and, and I'll make whatever deal I gotta make. I'll come back even. I'll come back next week, God, how about that? Or, or, or I'll, I'll, read the, I'll read the Bible, I don't understand, but I'll read it. Whatever the deal, I'll, I'll make a deal. God, just do for me what I need done. And how many of us, having received from God what he provides in response to our prayers, say, oh, good, thanks, God, see ya. I'll call you next time in trouble. I mean, listen, when the trouble comes, you're my man. I count on you. But otherwise, leave me alone. Okay, can everybody see how abominable that relationship is? How, how off creation and, and off intention that is for God's um, bringing us to life and, and into his world.
Because here's the deal. God created you and me to worship him. Full stop. That's it. He's not some kind of, you know, cosmic candy machine that I can drop my prayer quarters in and spin the dial and get what I want from so then I can go and live my life the way I want. He is the God, as we've said here and sung here, that deserves your everything, your worship, your life, your family, your possessions, your everything is from him and do him. And so how crazy it is for this godless Pharaoh to turn to the agents of God and say, hey, pray for me. Pray that I'll be comfortable. Pray that I'll have what I want. And then for him to get that and to say no. It's not what he was created for. It's not what you and I were created for. So as you and I leave this morning, we're just going to kind of end. If you don't know this God, if you've just been super superstitious about him and, and you've just kind of orbited him and not really landed in a relationship with God through Christ, I'm going to stand right over there with Travis and some other people, and we would love to introduce to you for the first time this Jesus who you have yet to see but can see by faith. But if you're here this morning and you already know him, can I encourage you to remember as he reveals in these plagues that he is the God of everything, leave here thankful today. Grateful for all the things that you and I take for granted. Can I remind you that he is the God who is inescapable? That should be a huge comfort to us. There's nowhere we can go. That's what Jeremiah said. There's nowhere I can go. I can go to the highest of heights. I can go to the lowest of depths. There's nowhere I can go that God is not. What a comfort that everything you and I go through in life, he's there. <laughs> But what a warning that everything you and I do in life, God is there. He's inescapable. He sees it all. Can you and I remember that it's way more, it's way more valuable in life with God to seek him and serve him and humbly bow before him and receive him from him what he, he, he gives us rather than to demand from him and bargain with him and then receive from him and leave him. That's not what we were created for. May God rebuke you in the lie that that is if that's the life that you're living. And bring it into gracious submission so that he can use you and you can worship him and you can walk in this life together. That's all I wanted to say to you this morning. Will you stand with me as we close? God in heaven, uh, thank you for your, your word and the way that it can speak to us and can direct us and confront us and challenge us. Thank you for the assurances that we find in it that you are, uh, when it comes to any other force in our life, any other God that we worship in life, you are triumphant, victorious. You cannot be stopped. You are able in all of our circumstances to overcome. And even when you choose uh, to allow things to go awry and for things to hurt, you're, you're doing all of that so that your, your greater goal of our worship can be achieved. Thank you, God, for your mercy and grace. Lead us to lives that, that seek to serve you and honor you above all other things. Show us that, what that means today 
even as we get in these cars you provided for us and drive home, make us mindful of who you are and how we should live in light of that truth. That's my prayer for us. That's all I got, God, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you go. I'll be over here.